scripture today is from Luke chapter 1, verse 17. And he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. All right, so back in 2012, I worked at a church in the East Village at the time. Obama was running for re-election against Mitt Romney a week before the election, probably beggar's night in Des Moines, something like that. I started noticing men in black suits and sunglasses walking around in groups, which is not normal for Des Moines. I got curious, so I approached them and asked them if they were like city planners or something like that. And they said yes, but of course that was a lie. So later that week, I got a call from a church volunteer saying that they had waltzed into the church, identifying themselves only as the authorities, which is very sketchy. On Friday, a man in a black trench coat tried the door and it was locked. And I opened it for him and he introduced himself as Emmett, White House Advance Lead. He told me that the president would be speaking outside the building on Monday and the night before the election. Michelle Obama, Bruce Springsteen, people like that would be there. And it would be Obama's last campaign event ever as a candidate. Emmett had asked the church if we would allow the campaign to just discreetly use the building during the event as a safe location for the president in a green room, for you know, First Lady, Bruce Springsteen, staffers, some other high-level elected officials who'd want some sort of a private meet and greet and we agreed. So later that day, I walked about 15 liars, I mean Secret Service agents, who are White House staffers and uh, campaign staffers, that sort of thing, through our building. We did a full survey of plumbing, electrical, gas, building structure, water furnace. It would have been nice to have some architect types there that day. So on Monday, I blocked off the parking lot and went to Sears, of all places, to buy a suit. Since I didn't have anything to wear to meet a president, there were snipers on the roof, there were bomb-sniffing dogs, stuff like that. The president and the first lady arrived late that evening to, for the meet and greet. I had a chance to chat with them for a minute or two, and then they were off to greet others and speak to a rally of 20,000 supporters waiting in the streets, which I think I have a picture of that. So that was the event. It's a little pixelated, but that was, you know, a mile from here. So keep, keep that image like the size of the crowd in your mind. Okay, that's good. Um, so most Fridays, I don't look out my window and see a man in a trench coat. And also I work from home now, so if I looked outside and saw a man in a trench coat, I might have to do a load of laundry after that. Um, but, so I've been a around for about 2,100 Fridays. And that is the only Friday that I can ever think of that anything like that happened to me. And in some ways, I was kind of ready for that moment. I knew the building as well as anyone could know a building. Like the internet setup, the rooftop access, the doors, the fire alarm company's number, every closet, every hole in the wall, every mouse trap. I knew the place like the back of my hand. But in another, in another sense, I really wasn't ready at all. I wasn't ready for Trenchcoat Emmett and the service, Secret Service Brigade 
or snipers or the fact that Michelle Obama is like super toned and could definitely beat me up. How do you meet a president? What do you say? Do you like bow? <laughs> Curtsy? <laughs> Should I tell him that my suit was from Sears? <laughs> In a moment like that, you're laid bare, in a sense. You feel obviously, painfully average. And during Advent, we take time to slow down and reflect on a different kingdom that's on the move. And believe me, this is a better story. A story of the truest love and power and glory working itself out in real people and real places. Last week, we looked at the, co the concept of anticipation. Today, we're going to focus on preparation. Start by looking at a small Jewish family in a village in the hill country near Jerusalem. This was the home of a priest named Zechariah and his wife, Elizabeth. Zechariah described himself by saying, I am an old man and my wife is, quote, well along in years. So clearly, Zechariah knew better than to call his wife old. In Luke 1, it says... In verse 5, in the time of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. His wife Elizabeth was also a descendant of Aaron. Both of them were righteous in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly. But they were childless because Elizabeth was not able to conceive, and they were both very old. Once when Zechariah's division was on duty, he was serving as a priest before God. He was chosen by lot, according to the custom of the priesthood, to go into the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And when the time for the burning of incense came, all the assembled worshipers were praying outside. Now Herod served as king of Judea, but he was a puppet king under the thumb of the Roman Empire. He kept the Romans happy, and he mercilessly killed anyone he perceived as a threat, including many of his own family members. He was an Edomite who identified as a Jew, but was not a faithful one. The Edomites were those who were descended from Isaac's son, Esau. I made a beautiful chart here to show you what I'm talking about. So from Abraham, you get Isaac. Isaac has twin boys named Jacob and Esau. Remember, Jacob is the one who offered Esau some stew in exchange for Esau's birthright, and then he weirdly took the deal. Jacob had 12 sons, and they represent the tribes of Israel. Um, but we're going to look at two of these sons today. The Israelite tribe of Judah, which becomes the line of David and Joseph and Jesus. The Israelite tribe of Levi, which becomes the priestly line, also known as Levites, from whom comes Aaron, Zechariah, who we just read about, and John the Baptist. And then lastly, you have the line of Esau, the Edomites, who would eventually produce King Herod. So we have Herod, a wicked puppet king, and we have righteous Zechariah and Elizabeth, both from the priestly line of Aaron. We can be done with that now, too. Thanks. So today we're thinking about preparation. How does one encounter God? Like, this is definitely not like a suit from Sears situation. How does, one, how do, how does God prepare us, maybe? Here's kind of my main point 
today. It's not that we prepare ourselves by trying to keep the Mosaic law, but we invite God to cultivate and prepare our hearts to receive him. He serves, that is Christ, as our priest. He cleanses us and makes us new. We don't fight our way to God by obsessive hypervigilance. We walk with him as a friend and enjoy his presence. We worship him. Jesus becomes the perfect mediator, or you could say priest, between God and man, because Jesus is both truly God and truly man. Jesus, or God's spirit, he prepares us for himself. All right, so back to Luke 1. Zechariah's life changes in an instant. This is better than trench coat Emmett or any of what I was talking about before. At this time in Israel, there would have been around 20,000 priests. So remember that crowd I showed you? We're talking that many priests. Here's roughly what his day would have looked like. So it's before sunrise, and hundreds of Jewish people are making their way to the temple. The priests cast lots to determine who will do what for the morning and evening sacrifices. Casting lots is something like rolling dice or flipping a coin. The first lot is cast. It determines which priest will cleanse the altar and prepare its fire. The second lot is cast. It falls on a priest who will kill the morning sacrifice and sprinkle the altar, the golden candlestick, and the altar of incense with blood. These two priests, they will perform these tasks again in the evening, but not so with the final lot. This will determine who would offer the incense. It's time for the third lot. They roll the dice and it falls on Zechariah. This elderly man had had so much disappointment and waiting in his life. There must have been such a flood of emotions. And he has no idea what's about to happen, too, to be clear. Infertility, the sense of bewilderment, wondering if God had given up on him. Was he too old? Had he started to assume that he would die before he ever had a chance to burn incense? All of that changed the day when God invited Zechariah to draw near. He walked toward the temple, through the outer courts, and struck a gong-like instrument. At that, the priests assembled and got ready to lead the gathered people in worship. The other two priests, to the, on, kind of on either side of him, walked up and they entered the holy place together. One priest set burning coals on the golden altar. Actually, it was probably short. Golden altar. Another arranged the incense. And then they exited the temple, leaving Zechariah alone. And actually, this kind of giant wall is kind of a good picture, a little bit, of like what this would have been like, right? So before him is this golden altar of incense. On a small table lay the burning coals with smoke slowly wisping, rising up. And behind the gold altar was a huge, thick curtain. You know, we have these curtains here, but bigger. Behind them was the Holy of Holies, the most holy place where no man could enter except the high priest on the Day of Atonement once a year. Zechariah faced the golden altar. To his right was the table of showbread, and to his left was the golden lampstand, which provided the only light. So we're in a space that's beautiful and bright. This was not that. 
This was dark. It was really dark. You've got a candle. You're by yourself. This is intense. It's you and the manifest presence of God, alone, light from a lampstand, a golden altar, the smell of incense and blood, silence. Hundreds outside joining you in prayer. You were there for them. This is really intense. This is like life and death kind of stuff. What do you pray? Maybe you plead for Israel, for better rulers, for God to lead you. Are you terrified? Are you nervous? So today we're reflecting on preparation, like I said. Think of the amount of preparation Zachariah had gone through for this moment. Years, really a lifetime, cleansings, prayers, uh, memorizing the Torah, repetition, generations of priests before him leading up to this moment. So like me, giving those lying Secret Service agents a tour, Zechariah knew this like the back of his hand in one sense. He was ready. In another sense, he really wasn't ready at all. I mean, how could you be? When we encounter God, not just sort of the containable, marketable, malleable one of our consumer imagination, we will be changed. We are transformed in some way, even in ways that may take years to notice, but it will happen, even if it's subtle. The gathered Israelites were expecting God to show up. They believed that he would draw near to them, to lead them, to protect them, to forgive them, but they probably also kind of expected it would be just another day. So Zechariah looks up. To his right, he sees an angel. And now I'm thinking, if I'm Zechariah, I'm like, oh, bleep, (laughs) right? But the angel, like, I'm toast, is what I'm thinking. But the angel reassures him. In Luke 1, it says this. Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing at the right side of the altar of incense. When Zechariah saw him, he was startled and was gripped with fear. That's why I said, oh, bleep. But the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son, and you will call him John. He will be a joy and delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He is never to take wine or other fermented drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he is born. He will bring Uh, He will bring back many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of their parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. And then Zechariah gets up a little courage. Zechariah asks the angel, how can I be sure of this? I'm an old man, and my wife is well along in years the angel said to him and I kind of like a little bit of like bravado in Gabriel's voice here but I'm just that's just me like I feel like he's like I'm Gabriel right there's a little bit of like you've got to be kidding I'm Gabriel I stand in the presence of God and I have been sent to speak to you and tell you this good news 
and now you will be silent and not able to speak until the day this happens because you did not believe my words, which will come true at their appointed time. Meanwhile, all the people, right, the people were waiting for Zechariah and wondering why he stayed so long in the temple. When he came out, he could not speak to them. They realized he had seen a vision in the temple, for he kept making signs to them, but remained unable to speak. All right. There's a lot that's kind of funny in that, but I can't get into it right now. The John mentioned here is John the Baptist, who would later witness the coming light of Christ. Look how Gabriel describes the unborn John. He will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of parents to their children, the disobedient to to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. So John's work was to make ready a people for the next church service, to overthrow the government. No, a people prepared for the Lord. So little did they know, Emmanuel was coming and he was going to upend everything they thought they knew. Okay, so you know that thing, maybe especially this time of year, when you're scrolling on Amazon and you're just like casually browsing maybe some like festive cat sweaters. And, and then every website and app you open for the next six months are just ads for festive cat sweaters. And then it, it just like inserts itself in your brain from then on. Everywhere you go, it follows you. This is what I'm kind of trying to do with this next section. <laughs> but for good, I promise. Maybe, hopefully, less annoying than Amazon cat sweaters. So let's browse together, so to speak. Okay, so remember the graph I showed earlier, or the chart? Well, I left out something that's relevant for the incarnation that is the coming of Christ. Let's read Psalm 110 together. This is from David. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord will extend your mighty scepter from Zion saying, rule in the midst of your enemies. Your troops will be willing on the day of battle. Arrayed in holy splendor, your young men will come to you like dew from the morning's womb. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are for a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will crush kings on the day of his wrath. He will judge the nations, heaping up the dead and crushing the rulers of the whole earth. He will drink from a brook along the way. And so he will lift his head high. Okay, so I kind of expected this passage to say, you are a priest in the order of Aaron, which we were just reading about before, like Zechariah. Or you are a priest in the order of Levi, which would have added up. But no, it says you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. It's like, what? Who? <laughs> so let's flap, 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 flip back to the story of when Abraham encounters this guy in Genesis 14, very briefly. Verse 17 says, after Abram, so it tells you where this is at in the story, right? He's not even yet Abraham. After Abram returned from defeating Keter-Leamar and the kings allied with him, the king of Sodom came out to meet him in the valley Sheva, that is, the king's valley. 
Here's Melchizedek. Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was a priest of God Most High, and he blessed Abram, saying, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, creator of heaven and earth, and praise be to God Most High, who delivered your enemies into your hand. Then Abram gave him a tenth of everything. Okay, so this doesn't make any sense. Abram is tithing? Like, the law doesn't even exist yet. And then Melchizedek is both a king and a priest? So he, I need to give him a milk. Can I just call him milk? That's maybe weird. Melchizedek, I should have come up with a nickname for him, stands out as an important figure without any mention of genealogy, history, really anything. He just kind of appears and then disappears later. Some people conjecture that this is a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus. I think Hebrews probably says otherwise, but whatever the case is, Melchizedek foreshadows the priest king Jesus. Melchizedek's name means king of righteousness. He serves as a king of a place called Salem, which means peace. And this particular Salem could very well be what we know now as Jerusalem which is city of peace. We already read in Genesis 14:18 that he was a priest of God most high. He's going around blessing Abram and receiving tithes. This seems all very out of order. Here's what seems to be happening. So David in Psalm 110, a millennium before Jesus, is prophetically preparing the Jewish people for a new kind of priesthood, an eternal one. The Levitical priesthood will expire because the sin just keeps on coming and the death just keeps on coming. It's only intended to be a shadow. There needs to be a perfect priest king to rule and serve as a mediator. Like I said earlier, Jesus is the perfect mediator because he is both truly God and truly man. Or as John the Baptist, a man who came from a line of Levitical priests would say later, this is the one I spoke about when I said, he who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. Okay, so if you're looking for a little bit of clarity in all this, the book of Hebrews is really the guide we need. We can't get into everything, but I just encourage if, you're, if you ever want to go down a really big rabbit hole, just basically read all of Hebrews on this topic. Verse 7, or verse 1 in chapter 7, says, this Melchizedek, was king of Salem and priest of God Most High. He met Abraham, returning from the defeat of the kings, and blessed him, and Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. First, the name Melchizedek means king of righteousness. Then also king of Salem means king of peace. Without father and mother, without genealogy, without beginning of days or end, resembling the son of God, he remains a priest forever. Okay, so far this kind of checks out with what I was saying and with what David was saying in Psalm 110 and Genesis 14. Kind of a review here keeps going. Just think how great he was. Even the patriarch Abraham gave him a tenth of the plunder. Now the law requires the descendants of who? Levi, who become priests to collect a tenth from the people, that is, from their fellow Israelites, even though they are descended from Abraham. This man, however, did not trace his descendant from Levi, and yet he collected a tenth from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. 
And without doubt, the lesser blessed the greater. In the one case, the tenth is collected by the people who die. But in the other case, by him who is declared to be living. One might even say that Levi, who collects the tenth, that's what priests, their role was to collect the tithe. That's part of what they did. Who collects the tenth, that, they, that he paid the tenth through Abraham because when Melchizedek met Abraham, Levi was still in the body of his ancestor. Okay, what? So, what he's saying is the tithe that Abraham gave to Melchizedek that we read about earlier was effectively Levi's tithe even though he wasn't born yet, right? It was like the priestly tithe was effectively given through Abraham to Melchizedek who functionally is Christ in this story, the, the priest forever. The power dynamics aren't quite what you would expect here. Like we're talking about the Abraham, and this is where things start to come together. Here's how Zechariah and John the Baptist and Aaron and all of this preparation was a shadow of what we're about to see in the birth of Jesus. Also, why does this any, any of this even matter? <laughs> well, I think the writer of Hebrews answers the question. They say this, if perfection could have been attained through the Levitical priesthood, and indeed the law given to people, to the people to establish, the people established that priesthood, why was there still need for another priest to come? One in the order of Melchizedek, not in the order of Aaron. For when the priesthood is changed, the law must be changed also. He of whom these things are said belonged to a different tribe, and one from that tribe has never served at the altar. For it is clear that our Lord, now we're talking about Jesus, descended from Judah, and in regard to that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. And what we have said is even more clear if another priest like Melchizedek appears. One who has become a priest, not on the basis of regulation as to his ancestry, but on the basis of the power of an indestructible life. Okay, so here's a really quick, that, so now we got Melchizedek is like, whoop, straight to Jesus. This is, Hebrews is connecting these dots without denying Judah. You could take that down. So Ju Jesus isn't qualified because he's from a specific tribe. I mean, he is from a specific tribe, but that's not the point. He's not who he is because Mary and Joseph are wealthy alumni at a fancy university and he has special access or something. I mean, he created them in the first place. And sure, Jesus is born of the line of David and Judah and fulfills all the prophecies required. But he's also a type of Melchizedek, a priest king whose reign will never, ever end. He's a priest on the basis of the power of his own indestructible life. Jesus is invincible. And he just kind of appears. Okay, let's see if you can predict where this goes. Verse 17. 
For is, it is declared, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. The former regulation, that is the law, is set aside because it was weak and useless, for the law made nothing perfect, and a better hope is introduced, by which we, what do you think it says next? Draw near to God. There it is. That was very, very disappointing, Kate. <laughs> uh, no, by which we draw near to God. That's right. By which we go to heaven. By which we go to hell. No. The former regulation is set aside because it was weak and useless, for the law made nothing perfect, and a better hope is introduced by which we draw near to God. This is the cat sweater that I'm talking about, that I want to follow you around everywhere you go. This is a key that unlocks so much of the scriptures. God is personal. That is, he is relational. In its broadest sense, all of what we're talking about is the garden, the Abrahamic covenant, which we looked at last week, the law, the prophets, it all leads us to drawing near to God personally. In relationship, you could say in shalom or Salem, peace. For years, Zechariah and Elizabeth, they pleaded for a son. And the Jewish people longed for a Messiah. And when all seems lost, living under Herod, God draws near and brings them good news. Literally, gospel. In, do you remember what Gabriel said? He said, I am Gabriel, I stand in the presence of God, and I have been sent to speak to you and to tell you this good news. He's here to share the gospel, you could say, with Zechariah, the euangelizo. Your son John will make ready a people prepared for the Lord. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit, foreshadowing what is to come at Pentecost. He will serve another son, one who is a different kind of priest of a different line. Here's the end of Hebrews 7, or most of the end. It says, now there have been many of those priests since death prevented them from continuing in office, because, but because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always intercedes for them or lives to intercede for them. Verse 26, such a high priest truly meets our need. One who is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens. Unlike the other high priests, he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people, he sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered himself. Okay, so to close, this Advent, or really any season, what we need so desperately is the nearness of God. And Christ, as our mediator, prepares us and pursues us. He's made us a temple of his Holy Spirit. 
and he dwells among us even now. In a sense, we've entered the Holy of Holies behind the curtain. This is a lot better than green room access or big rallies or that come and go. In one sense, Zechariah was as ready as he could ever be. He had the experience, he knew the scriptures, he was righteous. But where he wasn't ready, I suppose, is that he started to believe maybe that God had given up on him. This couldn't really be happening, right? I mean, he probably lost hope. But hope is why we're here today. Have you received the care of God to, for your soul, for you? I'm talking about for you. Are you open to his presence, the work of his spirit in your life, the power of love to transform you? Would you let him prepare your heart for whatever is next in your life? We're going to close with a final word from Hebrews 10. It says, Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain, that is, his body, and since we have a great high priest or a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled, like we were looking at earlier, sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he pro who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching.